Well, I want to invite you to grab your copy of God's Word this morning. Join me once again in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 29 is where we'll spend our time together this morning in God's Word. I do want you to know if you are new to North River Church, uh, every week as we gather together, we are working through a passage of Scripture and trusting that the Lord will speak to us through His Word. If you are new, you've caught us in the middle of a study through Mark's Gospel, and so we invite you into that, encourage you to join us in God's Word together this morning. I want to ask you this question as we prepare to dive into the text. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you simply wanted to give up? You ever been there? Maybe you started a new workout routine, and you're about a weekend, and you think, I'm done with this, probably not doing this anymore. Or maybe you've started a new diet. Monday mornings are always great. Tuesday afternoon, I want the Reese cup, you know what I mean? Just give up. Maybe a little more personal, maybe for you it's marriage. Maybe you're walking through struggle and difficulty and you have thought, maybe I should just give up. Maybe as a parent, you think about with your kids, you feel like you're always on correcting behavior, training, shepherding, and there's times when you just want to throw your hands up and say, I just need a break. I don't really want to do this anymore. Let's press a little bit deeper. What about as a follower of Jesus, your walk with him. What about when you're experiencing suffering, difficulty, struggle in your life as you are a follower of Jesus? What about when you experience doubt? What about in the midst of your walk with the Lord, you're experiencing suffering, and it's, it's causing you to wonder, is, is God, as we just saying, good? Because right now, it just doesn't necessarily feel that way. What do we do in those moments? I want you to know that the text this morning is going to highlight the reality that we have hope in these moments. And so I want to read the text for us, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 13. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write down these parallel passages. We do this each week as we are walking through Mark's gospel, Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 20, and then Luke chapter 9, verses 28 through verse 43. I'd encourage you in your own time with the Lord over the course of this Thanksgiving week ahead of us to spend some time reading through those passages that go along with Mark chapter 9 here and allow the Lord to continue to work in your heart and in your mind to point you to the hope that is available in Jesus Christ. I want to read for us beginning in verse 2 going through verse 13 and we will cover verses 14 through verse 29 a little bit later in the message but look with me, Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 2. This is God's word. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, 
as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Father, we ask this morning that you would open our eyes that we would be able to see. That you would open our ears that we would be able to hear. And that you would open our hearts and our minds that we would be ready to respond to your word and to your spirit. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said. Amen. As we dive into the text this morning, I want to encourage you to write down this main idea that will frame our time together. It's this truth in seizing seasons of suffering and doubt. We have hope because we have Jesus. In seasons of suffering and doubt, and lest you ever think in your mind that if I follow Jesus, I will be exempt from that, let me assure you, seasons of suffering and doubt will come upon us as followers of Jesus. But here's the thing. We have hope because we have him. We're going to see this play out in the text. First, hope in suffering, then hope in doubt. I want to remind you this morning of where we are in Mark's gospel account of Jesus' life and his ministry. Jesus, we have seen over the last couple of weeks, was with his disciples in a place called Caesarea Philippi. You'll see it up on the map here in just a second where the blue dot is, is where they are located as these events are taking place. And we have seen that in this season, Jesus is sharing with them just last week, we talked about what it means to follow Jesus, that the call to follow Jesus is the call to come and to die, to take up our cross and to follow him, to deny ourselves. In fact, Jesus has left that with his disciples. We have seen that they struggled to understand what this would exactly look like. They didn't have in their minds this framework of a suffering Messiah, a suffering servant. They thought nothing about Jesus other than if he's the Messiah, he must be the conquering king. And last week we said that Jesus very plainly, very clearly says to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, 
He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus says the road before me is a road of suffering. And if you are going to follow me, disciples, it will also mean a road of suffering for you. But there is hope in the suffering. In fact, look with me as we begin in verse 2. Six days after this conversation about suffering, it says that Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain. They were still in that region, but Jesus took them, took them up on the mountaintop. And it says that he was transfigured before them. Notice what this looked like. His clothes, Mark says, became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. In fact, this word for transfiguration is the same Greek word that you get metamorphosis from. In fact, what's being described here, if you can think about it in our terms, is when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, this change in form, function that happens for the caterpillar to become a butterfly. In fact, what's described here for Jesus is this change. Well, well, what is this change that's being described? Well, Jesus is seen in this moment in his full glory. In fact, as you think about this, you can write down in your notes Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 8 because Paul would remind us about Jesus, that when Jesus stepped foot out of heaven, that he set aside for a moment all of the riches and glory that was due him to take on the form of man and come among men. Though he was fully God and fully man, we do not in this season of Jesus's ministry outside of this moment see him in his fullness and in his glory. In fact, Paul would say that Jesus emptied himself and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. But I want you to notice in this moment, Jesus is seen in his glory. In fact, the other gospel writers will talk about his face shining. In fact, it says here that his clothes became radiant, intensely white. No one, I love the way Mark describes this, could bleach them any better to make them more white and shining. It's a fabulous picture in this moment of what Jesus looked like. But not only that, I want you to notice what also happens in verse 4. There appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So not only was Jesus transfigured, not only was this fullness and glory seen in this moment, but also there came in this moment Moses and Elijah there with Jesus, and they're having a conversation. It's a fascinating moment because you may wonder, well, why those two? Why those two central figures from the Old Testament scriptures? Why Moses? Why Elijah, who was one of the greatest prophets? Well, I think there's a point here that Mark is helping us understand and a reason why these two show up on the scene in this moment. In fact, if you want to write down in your notes, Luke chapter 24, verse 27 
Because on the back end of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he is walking with two disciples on the Emmaus Road, and they're having a discussion. They were thinking and voicing out loud, we thought maybe Jesus was the Messiah. We thought maybe it was him. We thought maybe he was the long-awaited one that we knew was going to come, that the Father had promised to send. But now, after all that's transpired, we know that he was crucified. We, we've heard reports that he had been raised from the dead, though we've not seen him. All the while, they don't recognize that Jesus is the one walking with them. And it says that Jesus begins, in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, with Moses and all the prophets, and he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So why are Moses and why is Elijah there with Jesus in this moment? I don't think it's by accident at all because Jesus, after his resurrection, would point back to Moses, the law, Elijah, the prophets, and help those two disciples on the Emmaus Road recognize that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited one that was promised. And so this moment, once again, reiterates for us the identity of who Jesus Christ is. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. I love verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And we get a little bit of explanation in verse 6. For he did not know what to say. He didn't have a clue. He was not expecting this for one. And then as he sees it, he doesn't really know what to say. But Peter, never one short for words, decides to say something anyway. Let me just put this out there. This is a little bit of wisdom information for you. If you don't know what to say, keep your mouth shut. If you don't know what to say, don't say anything. Because people may think if you're not communicating what you're thinking, that you're actually smarter than you are, right? But listen, if you open your mouth, you eliminate that possibility from that point forward. In fact, Peter could have kept his mouth shut. He didn't. And he says, we ought to make tents. We ought to just stay here. This is glorious. This is amazing. This is incredible. We, we should do this. Well, in the midst of that, watch what happens. Verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them. A voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. In this moment. With the glory of the Son of God on full display with Moses and Elijah there with him, reiterating the reality of who Jesus is, we hear in this moment the Father's voice. And he says about his Son, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. What a moment. And then... Verse 8, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. A glorious moment, and then it's done. Look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus charged them, 
Tell no one what you have seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So they kept the matter themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked Jesus, watch this in verse 11. Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? This is an interesting moment because I think his disciples are beginning to to put pieces together. They're beginning to to recognize. They've just seen this. They know that Elijah was there, and they're thinking in this moment what the scribes have been talking about because, remember, they were doubting who Jesus was. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah, but but they ask this question. Why, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now think about this, for them, they had just seen Elijah come, right? And Elijah must come, according to the scribes, before the Messiah comes. So they're beginning to connect the dots and go, maybe Jesus is, like he is who he says he is. And we understand that now, but notice that Jesus says in verse 12, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Because this is what Jesus understands for his disciples in this moment. He understands that their struggle is in what he had just told them. To follow him means suffering. And so he calls their attention in this moment back to this. And he says to them, how is it written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? Notice what he says following that. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. Jesus says to them, Elijah has come. And it's not the Elijah that they just saw. In fact, he says it's John the baptizer, the one who had prepared the way for Jesus to come onto the scene. Jesus, once again, is pointing to his disciples the reality that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But why does Jesus say to them, don't tell anyone until I rise from the dead? Because this is a moment that you would think Jesus would want his disciples to declare, to proclaim. And I think there's a specific reason why. Because he knows that as soon as he rises from the dead, as soon as the kingdom is inaugurated in that moment, the church is beginning to be built. He knows that these same disciples will experience suffering. They will experience persecution. They will experience discomfort in this life because they are following Jesus. And in that moment, Jesus wants to point them to the hope that in the midst of suffering, he is enough. Because the transfiguration points to the future that is coming for every single follower of Jesus. We have hope because we know that our suffering servant, Jesus, is coming back as the conquering king in the fullness of his glory. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father for us. 
and for his disciples as we walk through suffering, as we walk through struggle, as we walk through difficulty, we have hope because we know who Jesus is and what he has promised he will do. If you've come in this morning and for you, you're a follower of Jesus and walking through suffering right now, heard stories from our church family just this last week of just difficult stuff. I want to encourage you this morning. There is hope. Not hope that your circumstances will change because they may not. Not hope that it'll all get better just some magical way. It's not that either. It's hope in the reality of who Jesus is and what he has promised for us. Hope in him as the conquering king. Hope in him because our future is secure. You say, Pastor, I'm not yet a follower of Jesus. I'm trying to figure this whole thing out about who Jesus is and whether or not he is the Messiah, whether or not I should place my faith and trust in him for salvation. Let me ask you this question. What are you going to do when you experience suffering in your own life? How do you deal with that? How do you cope with that? How do you navigate through that in a world where there is no explanation and no hope apart from Jesus Christ? I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. There's an opportunity for you this morning to find hope in suffering. It will be found in Jesus Christ and him alone. Not only do we have hope in suffering, but we also have hope in doubt. Look with me at verse 14. In fact, on the back end of this transfiguration story, Mark includes this story of Jesus healing a boy with an unclean spirit. Notice, I want you to listen to how this plays out. Verse 14, when they came to the disciples, that's Jesus and the three who were with him on the mountain, they came down and they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, 
All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that, a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. What a fascinating moment for Jesus' disciples as he's not on the scene. Man comes with a son who is demon-possessed, and they ask Jesus' disciples to cast out this demon, to heal this boy, and they are unable to do it. Jesus and the three that were with him come onto the scene. There's an argument that's taking place. I can no doubt in this moment there's a conversation going on with the scribes and with Jesus' disciples. They are probably lodging accusations against them. See, your, your rabbi is not really the Messiah. He's not really the one who was promised, or else you would be able to cast out this demon. See, you're not able to even do that. And Jesus comes onto the scene, begins to ask a few questions of the father. How long has your son been like this? He says, from childhood. And he tells Jesus that it has almost come to the point of costing this son his life. And then the father says to him, if you can do anything, verse 22... Have compassion on us and help us. Notice Jesus' response in verse 23. He says, if you can. This is a question with an exclamation point following. Jesus in this moment certainly can. He has the power. There is no doubt about that. We've seen that on display previously up into this moment. But for this father, he doesn't necessarily have faith that Jesus can do this. Notice Jesus' response, all things are possible for one who believes. Jesus says in this moment, the issue is this man's faith. And remember that that faith is not something absent from the object that that faith is in. Jesus is not saying in this moment, this man's faith is just not strong enough. In fact, what Jesus is saying in this moment is that this man's problem is he doesn't recognize how magnificent, how great Jesus is. Because if he understood the reality of who Jesus is, this issue of faith would not be a problem. And hear me this morning, our response as we think through this is not to wrestle through the question of whether our, straight, our faith is strong enough. But the question we have to ask is, do we recognize the truth of who our faith is in? 
Do we recognize how great Jesus is? Do we recognize how powerful he is? Because oftentimes in moments of doubt, that is where our problem lies. We don't see Jesus for who he is. In fact, notice the father's response in verse 24. I love this. The father of the child cried out and said, notice what he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. How honest in this moment. How transparent for this father. In the midst of this moment, to say to Jesus, Jesus, I... I do believe, but Jesus, I need your help where I struggle to believe. I want to say to you, follower of Jesus, there are moments in our lives, in our walk with the Lord, where we will experience doubt. Maybe you've come in this morning and as a follower of Jesus, you've experienced doubts, but you would never say that because people would look at you and think you just don't have, you just don't have enough faith. That's your problem. You just, you just don't recognize. But I want you to know this man in this moment is willing to cry out to Jesus. I believe you. I trust you. But I am going to be honest. There are moments where I don't believe you and don't trust you. And I need your help in those moments. In fact, he throws himself on the mercy of Jesus. Here's the problem. When we as followers of Jesus experience doubt, and instead of that doubt driving us to Jesus, it drives us instead away from him. In fact, maybe it's even driven you at some point away from his church, where you've wrestled through walking through difficulty and walking through struggle and just doubting the goodness of God in that moment and wondering if God is good and if he is who he says he is, why then am I walking through this that I'm walking through right now? Can I encourage you, if that's where you are this morning, lean hard into Jesus. Notice that Jesus in this moment doesn't say to this man, I can't believe you would say that. Notice, it says, when Jesus saw that in verse 25, he immediately rebuked the unclean spirit. He said, come out, never enter this boy again. They thought the boy was dead. And Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and the boy arose. And then I love this moment in verse 25. When he had entered the house, His disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? I can see a measure of doubt in his disciples' minds in this moment. Remember, Jesus had sent them out previously, and they had proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. They had healed people. They had cast out demons. We read about that already. But this moment, they're unable to do what they had done previously. And I could assume in this moment that they're asking this question probably a bit frustrated, a bit embarrassed, but maybe even doubting whether or not they understand the truth of who Jesus is. And notice his response in verse 29. He said to them, 
This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now you look at that and you may be tempted to think that Jesus is saying in this moment, guys, you missed the first thing. If you'd have prayed, it would have happened. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, I could imagine the disciples had done everything they could think of. You ever been in a situation where you just can't figure something out? And you're like, I'm going to throw everything against the wall. Maybe something sticks. I could imagine that's what they had done. They had done it once, maybe done it a couple of times prior to that. But, but here's this moment. They're unable to do it. Jesus says, can't be driven out by anything but prayer. I don't think the indictment on the disciples is they weren't praying. I think here's the problem. They were depending in this moment on their own strength and their own power to accomplish, watch this, something they had already done before. Why need Jesus? And in this moment, Jesus calls their attention to remind them of how desperate they are in need of him. To say to them, you desperately need me. And hear me this morning, we do too. And where we doubt, where we struggle, the answer is to find hope in Jesus. I want to ask you if you would to bow your heads with me this morning as our worship team makes their way back up. Maybe you find yourself in a season of suffering right now. Maybe you find yourself in a season of doubt as a follower of Jesus. There is hope this morning. There is hope in Jesus. I want to encourage you, lean into him. Rest in him. Cling to him this morning. Maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus. I want you to know this morning that in suffering and in doubt, there is hope for you. And that hope is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That for you this morning is the step that you need to take. Father, we thank you for your word. God, would you grant us through your grace hope wherever we find ourselves this morning. Hope in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to stand and join us as we sing this morning an upbeat, encouraging reminder of who Jesus is. You sing with us. <laughs>